Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, the podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Sumit Chakrabarti of President's University in, in Kolkata. Uh, we, are, we are going to be speaking about um, a brand new uh, Cambridge University Press publication called Local Selfhood, Global Turns. And the subtitle is Akshay Kumar Dutta and Bengali Intellectual History in the 19th Century. Sumit, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, very well. Very glad to speak to you about this work. Um, now, clearly your work is putting on the radar of a wider readership and even uh, of, uh, within our field, uh, the, 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 the presence and the contributions of this individual. And of course, you wrote a book about this individual, but in brief, can you tell us who is this person? Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, let me begin by saying that 19th century Bengal has been uh, a matter of uh, uh, a great amount of academic churning in the last say, 30 to 40 years. And we've been talking about 19th century Bengal uh, in terms of colonial India uh, with uh, people like Ram Roy, Ishat Chandra or say someone like Keshav Chandra Sen, or Shami Vivekananda being spoken about a lot as people who have intellectually shaped that moment, that uh, very important moment in the history of the Bengali race, uh, when they were emerging from a certain, as some people term it as the Bengali Renaissance. Although, once again, there are a lot of ways uh, by which we can look at this particular expression being more than it's also I don't particularly agree with it, but nevertheless, it's sometimes false. Now, these were some of the most important people who shaped the Bengali internet, the way Bengal reacted or acted in terms of or how they were they were responding to colonial rule or as colonial subjects in the nineteenth century. Now, what struck me was that I've been reading 19th century Bengali for quite a while now, and I've realized that there are some gaps in this kind of, or uh, the way 19th century Bengali has been represented. And one of these gaps, one of these significant, significant gaps was Tokhoff Madoto. I contend in this book was one of the important intellectuals who was writing at the time uh, and who, whose work has been consistently kind of, he, he appears in footnotes mostly, and he has appeared in 
as passing references in most of the work uh, on nineteenth-century Bengal. And this is what struck me that you know he's not typically a small voice of history. He was an important player, and this is where I thought that I'll talk about occult Doctor and I would write about him. Also, uh, there has been, you know, as 19th century Bengal has been, as I said, a very important academic enterprise in the last 30, 40 years. Both in English and in the vernacular, there have been uh, a lot which has been written on the subject. However, in in, in the vernacular as well, books on Okabato were very rare, and we can only find a couple of books that deal solely with Akshabato, which is why uh, I thought that it was about time that I start I, 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 I would write something about this, this interesting man. So uh, let us, uh, before diving into this interesting man, you mentioned a comment in passing that perhaps we should take up while we're setting the stage. Why do you feel that, um, share more about your thoughts about this term Bengali, res, uh, Bengali Renaissance. Why do you feel it's not, it's inapter, or perhaps you can contextualize and share for the audience why why there are other scholars who, who use this term. Right, so you see there was a lot happening in the 19th century in Bengal and I, when I say 19th century I'm talking about 100 years but they were not a homogeneous 100 years to the way it was just uh, a time when say beginning with people like Ramon Roy and in the middle years we have people like and in the later years, we asked somebody like, won't you tell me to talk about that? Then you will have to go. All of them uh, talking about uh, not only uh, the self-food of the Bengali subject, of the colonized Bengali subject, but also about uh, how one responds to to colonialism, how one responds to the changes, particularly in terms of religion and religious reform. You see a lot was happening from starting from Ramavan's appeal and Satida to how Shachandro was going for widow remarriage on the oil, then how Bokim Chandra calls for a kind of or or a kind of nationalism which was unforeseen in Bengal before Bokim started writing. So it is at this very interesting juncture of cultural changes, of cultural, uh, cultural uh, and uh, religious uh, journey that Okadoto becomes, why I'll say why Okad becomes an important figure, well, is that First of all, as I've already said, that I've rarely heard people talking about Okhadoptim in content, but uh, one of the important interventions that I think is worth mentioning is that is that Okhadoptim was the first editor of the very influential Dr. Budin Putrika, which was the, uh, or which was a uh, uh, I put part of the images of they were remarkable, 
and Dr. Gobin Kochika, it was, you know, it was also like an age of periodicals, many periodicals were being published at that time, but Dr. Gobin Kochika became instrumental in bringing in a lot of debates into the cultural politics of the Bengali cultural of society in Calcutta in the 19th century. And Akhmadapu became the, well, Dr. Gobin Kochika was first published in 1843 with Dr. Dr. as the editor. He remained the editor of the Dr. Vodini Potrika for 12 years, maybe 43, maybe 45. Uh, and these 12 years, kind of, if you look at the volumes of the Dr. Vodini Potrika during it was not only talking about religion per se, but it was talking about religion, culture, vernacular education, science. And thus, it was kind of shaping the cultural politics of the milieu, which Akhavak was the editor. So one understands, and it's a not to go being the, the ideologue behind this. And then there was a uh, very interesting tussle between Devangumat and Okpo about how to interpret the Brahma Dharma and how to talk about Hinduism uh, as a foil to Brahma And thereby, there was a lot of debate and discussion regarding this within the pages or on the pages of the Kattabhutan This is one thing. The other thing is, you see, Devanath Tagore, the son of Varpanath Tagore and the father of Ravinavath Tagore, it belonged to the elite intelligentsia of that. Okhadatto came from a small village from the Vortuman district called Jupi. And he came into Calcutta and he had a very uh, indifferent education, one might say so, because he did not finish his school education. And then suddenly, because and but he he he, he was reading at home, and suddenly he he was at the, he was in the middle of things. He was at the center of things, and thereby he was also molding as the editor of the very elite, supposedly elite, uh, Doctor Bodhini Well, he was bringing in influences. Uh, from certain unknown religious sects of India some religious sects that nobody talks about, that are those which are relegated to the uh, absolute margins of existence. And he suddenly brings them in. And with bringing them in, he's also bringing in a very, very heterogeneous leadership along with this, which is what, and thus, Dr. Vodin Kotrika, when Akhardatpur was editing it, uh, it had a huge circulation. It was the highest circulated periodical during that time because not only was the elite English educated Urshua Patrubo reading it, but there were also people from the the people who rarely read periodicals and who would not who did not belong to a particular class or caste identity. We also started reading the Dr. Wood which is why I say that Akhar was instrumental 
in bringing in a certain change in the reading habits of the public at the time. And he was also bringing into focus uh, the, the, lo the local and the sub-local uh, uh, ideas, uh, influences, religious practices, etc. Into, uh, into the forefront for grounding them to the Bhaktivedanta Guru. So that the global local thing suddenly became the, the, how, how, how one defines the local became a very interesting prospect in the hands of someone like Bhaktivedanta Which is why it was a very, his contribution to uh, this particular, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea of editing uh, a periodical became a very formative, a very Pivotal uh, influence during that time. Yeah, fascinating. Do you want to say a word about the structure of the book? Uh, well, okay. So uh, I have structured the book in the way. First of all, in the first chapter, I have spoken about the beginning of As I was saying, that he came to Kolkata, and he was a very good friend of Vidyashago. But Interestingly, both Vidyashagor and Akhagato were people who have come from the village to the city, and they were assimilated in a very curious way into the elite cultural framework of Kolkata at that time in the 19th century. So the first chapter talks about the medieval where where do we locate him? We locate him in Kolkata as a person coming from the outside as a person befriending some of the most elite bourgeois of the system, and yet continuously questioning his location within that system uh, through subversions, through reading against the grain. And so the first chapter talks generally about that. The second chapter talks about Okkarvato as a science worker. Now, this is a term that I have coined while writing the book, what do I mean by science worker? Is that the, 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 the project of colonial science was a very big project, and there have been books written about it, how all the British brought science through science and modernity into India, and how they practiced that science, and how uh, it impacted the local native population. Books have been written on this. Interestingly, Okhoi was one of the first uh, people who started to write science textbooks in the vernacular. So he was not a scientist. He was not somebody who was working with the colonial uh, master class. There, there were who were working with them in the middle, from the middle of the 19th century in projects, in science projects, uh, in cartographic projects, in projects about technology. So there were people who were working with the British masters uh, or the master class within science. So they were, they were native scientists. Okhadotto was not a scientist. But he was somebody who was a keen reader of scientific journals and periodicals. As a, uh, as a young man, he used to visit the Calcutta Medical College to 
see the dissection of human bodies. He was interested in botany and plants. So here was someone who was for the first time as a native writing books in the vernacular on science. Not that they were not books in the vernacular, but most of them were written by the sahibs, by, by the white uh, colonial masters, and their vernacular was a bit stilted and sometimes difficult for the native reader. So he was, right as a science, I called him a science worker because he was gradually disseminating scientific knowledge, quote-unquote modernity, into the vernacular reading public of the times. By Even in the Tatabudini Potrika, he published essays on, say, volcanoes, on uh, plants, on plant lives, on the universe, how, how does one look at the universe. Scientific essays, small, uh, pithy, scientific tracts written in easy in, in easy vernacular. So I've called him the science worker and then the second chapter I discuss uh, I call it the new world of science or cultural doctor as the science worker. In the third chapter I talk about I talk in detail about when he was the editor of the Dr. Wutilipotrika and how there was a lot of self-fashioning as well as well as fashioning of the Bengali identity within a colonized space that was uh, that he was instrumental in bringing in. So this is and how there was a certain global connect to the kind of uh, the kind of self-fashioning that he was doing and how he was fashioning the Bengali identity as well or the Bengali Hindu identity as well. Uh, he, he, he was writing tracts such as uh, in Bengali it is called Prachin Indigir Shomodhradatra which is the sea, the, the sea voyages of the ancient Hindus in which he was connecting uh, the present historical location of the Bengali Hindu subject with that of a past of a past in which there was a connect with places like Sri Lanka, Java, Sumatra, through the Mediterranean route as well, and into Europe and Africa. So this is just one example. So in this period, he was so in this period he was talking about, or he was instrumental in bringing in discussions on how one fashions oneself as a colonized subject uh, and reach out to the world reach out to the, to the global intellectual climate uh, of the times and how, how India, Harukpur, should be connected. In the fourth chapter, I talk about the conception of Dharma, and I take up two figures here, Akhvatvar Dhaku and Bunkin. Now, Dharma is not uh, used by either Akhvatvar or Bunkin in the sense of religion, but it's a kind of it's 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 the domain of the social and the culture. So for Wong Kim, for example, now this is another important thing that I discuss in this chapter, is that most historians have argued that the kind of the idea of 
the national, the idea of Bharatvarsha was in a certain sense initiated by the writings of Bolkin in the second half of the 19th century, 1880s, with, and with the, once again also, also with the publication of a very important essay by Bolkin Jungle on Dharmatakdo, which was published in 1888. Uh, I have argued that there was a certain, uh, I, I have also discussed how Bolkin had read Akhoi's works when in school and college, and Akhoi wrote an important book for Dharmonik uh, in 1856. A lot of what Bolkin, or at least some of what Bolkin argues in the Dharmatak, uh, is something that was all already discussed by Okoy in Tharmoniti. And so I, I have suggested in the book that the, the conceptions of Tharmo in both Bunkin and Okoy were similar, congruent, and it is quite possible that Bunkin was influenced by Okoy in the way he was talking about Tharmo as a cultural construct, as cultural motion because Bonkin Bonkin uses three important words in his Tharmatopur Bhakti, which is devotion, Priti, which is love, and Doya, which is compassion. So Dharma is a kind of a coalition of Bhakti, Priti, and Doya. If one reads Okkar's Dharmoniti, which was uh, written and published at least 30 years before Bonkin's Dharma Doctor. Okhoi, for Okhoi, Dharma is a combination of Upochikirsha, which is benevolence, Bhakti, which is devotion, and Nayaporota, which is justice. So Bonkin's devotion, love, and compassion, and Okhoi's benevolence, devotion, and justice. Now, once again, benevolence and compassion are congruent words. Devotion is the same. And so there was kind of, there's a lot of congruence in the way both of them talk about Dharma as a part of cultural practice rather than directly as a part of religion. So this is one thing, this is the thing that I discuss in my fourth chapter, the conception of Dharma, Okpa and Bonki. Uh, in the fifth chapter, I talk about the public sphere or the Jala Samaj. And I talk about how Okhoi talks about an affective engagement with the Janoshawaj, how he tries to argue through the element of affect uh, with his reading public at that time, asking them to or to to react to their uh, to their society, to their shawaj in a certain way, in a way in which in an emancipatory way in which on the one hand, there is modernity and scientism. On the other hand, there is a deep compassion and love for the fellow subject. And a movement from jati, or race, to job out to the world. So this is how uh, Okoy talks about the polity, or imagines a polity, within, within the colonized space that would be in the future an instrumental in opposing, uh, in opposing uh, both colonialism and subject, I'm sorry, and uh, and the way one subject is fostered. 
by the by the colonizer. In the last chapter, the final chapter, I talk about Bharat Warsha, the construction of imagining Bharat Warsha. I talk about identity, history, and nationhood. In terms of two thinkers, once again, Akhmai Bhattu and Budev Mukhopadhyay, another neglected figure from 19th century Bengal, and how both of them, through their writing of history or dream history, the category of dream history, they are trying to create an idea of the selfhood that reaches from Jati to Java and how they go from the local to the global through the idea, through, through a dream, or through the conception of the dream history writing and how both of them have written uh, ways in which one can imagine a part of in the future. So this is how, more or less, the book is continuing uh, Fascinating. So tell me something. What do you find most um, impressive or remarkable about this figure? Surely there's a great deal that you've touched on, but what really caught your attention about this figure? Okay, so that's a, that's an interesting question. Well, well, the first thing is that you see in Bengal itself, even today, there is a big debate about how one reads Otto because he was a complex figure in the first few years of his, you see, first of all, there's a big debate about whether he was an atheist or not. Uh, now, I have argued uh, in my book that he was not an atheist, but the fact is that it was a very, it was a very checkered life that he led. So he was, as I say, he was the editor of the Doctor Botany, then he became unwell, and then slowly he moved out of public life and he became a complete recluse. And he set up a space, he built a, a house by the uh, banks of the of the, of the Gonga, or Ganges, in a place called Bali. And there he studied plants on the one hand, and on the other hand, he studied the mendicant saints and sadhus who would go by the, who pass by the banks of the Ganges. And he wrote this stone two volumes called the Bharat Bhushupra So the the mendicant sadhus of India. And so it was a very checkered life and on the and he was he he was a great uh, admirer of Newton and Darwin on the one hand and he was a great admirer of Bacon and Comte. And he consistently mentions Bacon and Comte in his works. He mentions Newton and Darwin in his works. And he talks about a certain spiritual India, of a spiritual Bharatwash, a certain kind of a Hindu Samaj that needs to be recognized of its various nature because of the kind of multiplicities of uh, religious sects that were there in India and how they were thinking about the rational, how they were thinking about the divine. The interesting thing here is that it is very difficult to put Okhoi in a box and say, well, here is a rationalist and a rationalist who has remained like that throughout his life. Here is someone, well, he was a rationalist. He was a scientific minded man, but he was also somebody who was deeply invested 
in the very, uh, uh, how do I put it, the very uh, contingent nature of religiosity, in the very, uh, in the way in which uh, traditional, he would move out of traditional religious system. He, you see, once again, another interesting point is that he was not only one of the first Brahmins, but he also was one who, along with Devendranath, wrote the religious book of the Brahmins, of the Brahmodharma. So, for someone who was part of that very institutionalized sect of the Brahmins, gradually moving out into or delving into the multiplicities of the Indian mind, of the of Indian religiosity, of its various dappled nature, is something that one needs to take into account when one talks about Oxford. He was a typical, if I, if I would say that 19th century was when the Bengal Renaissance was taking place, then Okhardotto would be that typical Renaissance man who had many interests and who moved into many directions and who has worked minutely into all these many directions. So that, that is how he, he was a very, it was a very checkered, uh, of, one might say, a very checkered trajectory that his life had. And yet, um, that very checkeredness, if that's a word, it's a word now, I suppose, that very textured nature of his trajectory is precisely why he might be viewed as um, 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 as, as, as the quintessence or, or sort of, um, or, or I think Brian Hatcher calls him the epitome, the epitome of the, uh, of the age, that somehow he embodies... Uh, uh, the various transitions and interests. He, his, by virtue of his his work, he sort of he takes the temperature and 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 follows suit. Uh, see, here is someone who was writing school textbooks. Here is someone who was engaging in very important contextual debates about religious conversions, from Christianity to Hinduism, or vice versa or from Hinduism to Brahmanism. Here is someone who was a keen student of the sciences. Here is someone who was critical of uh, the of, of colonial rule and yet a great votary of modernity. Here is someone who was reading uh, both Bacon, uh, on the one hand, Bacon, Comte, Darwin, Newton, and on the other hand, the tantric traditions of India. So here is someone who was being, in the true sense of the word, eclectic. So it, he embodied that kind of a, and how surprising is it that, you know, we have been talking about the 19th century Bengals for so long, and yet uh, nobody has stopped at length about Akhadatu. This is what struck me. This is what struck me as a major research gap, or which is why I thought that I would try to see how it feels like to write about it. Well, certainly you filled a, a gap um, in the scholarship. Do you have any conjecture as to why that gap exists? Uh, otherwise, put, do you, is, is any particular reason or reasons for which he's been hitherto neglected? Uh, frankly, frankly, I, I have been surprised, but I don't have a clue. I don't know why, because 
You see, most of the historians, they mention him. They mention him only, as I said, in footnotes or in the passing. Uh, he's difficult to read. Sometimes he's, uh, he's, it, it takes a lot of patience uh, to read him, but that is that could not be one of the reasons why. I think somehow, because there were so many very important figures who were popes, on the one hand, intellectuals, and the, on, on the other hand, ideologues, who were consistently making a political mark in the 19th century. They were all making important political marks. So, on the other hand, Akhargunto was, I have mentioned almost time and again, he was this quiet practitioner. He he would never engage in any public debate. He was somebody who would never be in the thick of things, in the heat of things. He would never go into a direct confrontation with the colonial past. So this could be one reason why, because he was never uh, uh, in the eye of the storm, so as to say. Uh, he, he's never confronted directly uh, any social issue with the colonial government or with the traditionalists of the times. Uh, he was never he was never directly into things, which is why possibly he could have been crossed over by those historians. Fascinating. Is there anything else about the project or this figure that you'd like to share today? Uh well, just one little comment is that I in this book I I could not cover uh, I, uh one one part of uh, his work, which is, I have mentioned, we have discussed it in the last chapter, but as, as I said, the Bharat Burshi Upashal Chandradai, it is a two volume, two fat volumes, uh, and it's very important work, and I, I have not been able to uh, do justice to uh, this particular work of his, which needs probably another very long essay or a monograph, and I apologize to my readers that you know in a certain sense this is one gap that that is there in my book and I want to address the gap presently uh, so that is one thing uh, thank you for sharing that now personally I would completely reframe that insofar as um, no, no, I'm sorry but you're welcome readers for leaving you something uh, of interest that you'd like to learn about um, you know the best books are beginnings they really are to my mind uh, the best books are beginnings because they're 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 treading new ground, and uh, then we have more questions always. So this is good. Um, is that what you're working on next, or is there anything in particular you're working on presently? Oh, well, uh, uh, at the moment, no. At the moment, I'm editing a collection of short stories by Rabindranath Tagore for Oxford World's Classics volume. This is the first time that Tagore will be. Uh, available in the Oxford World's Classics volume, so I'm editing that at the moment. But once I finish that, I intend to go back to this particular project and not follow You'll have to get in touch once that is out, because it would be it would be fascinating to cover that podcast as well. Great. Well, thank you for thank you for appearing today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For those listening, we've been talking about this fascinating um, um, figure in 19th century Bengal um, that you can read about in uh, this brand new uh, 
Cambridge University Press publication, Local Selfhood, Global Turns. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, uh, keep reading, and keep contemplating obscure figures, <laughs> past, present, and maybe even in the future. Take care.